it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. And it if sure you are, is. <laughs> is, isn't it? I know. And and if you're looking for something, the perfect gift for a friend or for yourself, I recommend. Maybe you can recommend it because it sounds really self-serving and narcissistic when I recommend it. Um, the wonderful oral history of Star Trek, uh, the well, 50-year mission. Would that be the 50-year mission? Uh, volume one be. and two? Volume one. Now, I want to make an important distinction. Volume one, available now in paperback. Volume two, only in hardcover still. Right. So, But you can get the audio version, get the digital version. You can get them all. Because maybe them all. you want them get all. Get all of them. You know, because that would be ideal. I, I would prefer <laughs> you get them all. If I had my, my druthers, as they say. And then, of course, also... Our other books, which are worth checking out, Nobody Does It Better, also available in hardcover and now in paperback. That's about uh, James Bond, isn't it? How'd you guess? I just about James Bond. Because nobody does it better, that's why. It's a great book about James Bond. So as you get ready for the inevitable release of uh, No Time to Die sometime in the next decade. There's no time um, to release. (laughs) You want to pick up No Time to Die, again, also available on digital, audio, and in hardcover and paperback from, uh, from Tor Forge. And uh, if you want to do a deeper dive, check out uh, So So Say We All, our oral history of both Battlestar Galactica series, which is only available in hardcover. And I don't believe there's an audio book. I just think a digital. I'm not sure why they didn't do an audio book. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we can I'll, do something about that. Maybe we will. Maybe we'll just record <laughs> our own and we'll, we'll show them. So uh, anyway, uh, if you're thinking about the holidays and wondering what to get, please uh, check out uh, my books uh, with Ed Gross. The 50-Year Mission, Volume 1 and 2, So Say We All, An Oral History of Battlestar Galactica, and most recently, Nobody Does It Better, A Complete Oral History of the James Bond Films and Spy Mania. Ed Gross will thank you. Hey, Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I, I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's you know what I love about it's, the Electric Now app? It's better it's on so video. It's so easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download the it. app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff too. You go to the app store. It says electric now. You download it. And then it. in press, the United States. Press the button and there it is. There it is. And you can choose. You can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy and episodes of all your favorite electric surge podcasts. So why wait? Download the electric now app and start enjoying us anytime. through the snow on the one horse open sleigh or the fields we go laughing all the way belt on bobtail ring making spirits bright what fun it is to laugh and sing a sleigh song tonight
this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And to celebrate our third annual Trexperts Holiday Special, we have the cheeriest people I know to join us. The writer of <laughs> Thor and X-Men First Class. You know him uh, from his work on Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, Fringe and Black Sails, Mr. Ashley Edward Miller. Hello, ho, 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 and making his triumphant return to the Trexperts. Yes, he is a pop culture connoisseur. Oh. He is the proprietor of the Burnett work. He now has a machine gun. He is Robert <laughs> Meyer Burnett. Ho, ho, ho. Uh, it's great to be back. I love doing this. I can't believe this is the third time we've done this. Three years running. My God. We keep coming up with things to be excited about. Mm. So if you haven't read the description, you may not know what we're doing this year. The first year we did this, we did uh, 51 greatest Star Trek episodes ever. 51 greatest Star Trek episodes ever, somewhat controversial, but mostly beloved. Uh, then we returned with 51 greatest Star Trek moments, moments. ever. So ever. what's it going to be this year? Something entirely new. We can't repeat ourselves. We we're, we're, no, we're we doing probably will. <laughs> we're doing it better, and we're going to infuriate and delight you. We're going to be the givers of pain and delight. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is the hundred and one greatest science fiction and fantasy television episodes of all time. Oh my! It's full of stars. We are going it's to so remove exciting. all of your brains. All of them. Yes. Every and last one. If we don't, then I you're going to want to by the end of this. Move your, I remove your own I'm brain. Giving, I don't think I'm giving anything away to say Spock's brain is not on the list. Not on the list. Not on the list. There are write-ins. Yeah. There are. There, there, there are write-ins. And, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, you may be wondering, you know, what's number one? Where, where, you know, the, the countdown is a holiday tradition. The, the countdown. We're doing a countdown. And, and uh, it goes all the way back to the legendary Casey Kasem on America's Top 40. As every every year he count down the, the best uh, the, the best songs of the year. First of all, a huge um, feed amount of our, of our audience is going, who's Casey Kasem? And well, he was the voice of Robin going, on Super Friends. And Duh. a second, and a bunch more are going, what's radio? So, you know, <laughs> Well, clearly they didn't see Star Trek, the motion picture then. That's right. Radio. <laughs> Radio. <laughs> well, and, uh, you know, I used to love, remember Nightline? Remember Nightline? At, that was at the, the one with David Hasselhoff in the car? I'm Ted oh, Koppel, man. and this is Nightline. They always did a special at the end of the year where they did, they did a recap of what had happened that year and their predictions for the next year. And I, I, I always loved that. But boy, nobody could have predicted this year, could they? No. Oh. <laughs> no, no they, they, no, they could not. So before we start, does anyone want to make predictions for 2021? My any, prediction any, is pain. Okay, I'll make it easy for you. We'll die another, die another day. Will No Time to Die actually come out in 2021? Yes. No, but, but it will be retitled Release Another Day. No, it's going to go streaming. You think so? I do. I don't know. Sure, sure it will. I, I would have said no very vehemently 
a few weeks ago. But after the Warner Brothers thing, anything is possible. Many such journeys are possible. I don't know. Not after last night, they're not. Let's not get into that. I don't we know what to that stay means. positive. Mark <laughs> hasn't watched it yet. Oh. What, what oh, have I watched? Nothing. Bart LaRue returns to TV, Mark. Yeah. Say, you're kidding, right? No, I, I mean, I, I, mean I, I, I know you're kidding about the Bart LaRue part. No, no I'm not. putting it together. No, He's I'm not. not kidding. No, I'm not. Oh, my God. I may never watch it then. I may never watch that it. That wouldn't be a bad decision. if I don't decision. watch it, it doesn't exist. That's right. <laughs> if well, you don't see it, it can't see you. Clearly not a candidate for our 101 <laughs> greatest sci-fi episodes of all time. And this is going to be this is going to be a wild ride. This is going to be a wild ride, I got to tell you. So uh, without any further ado, we're going to begin our countdown. Casey, tell us what we've won. Well, it's the 101 best sci-fi and fantasy episodes ever made. And here is number 101. Number 101 from the 1979 television series Buck Rogers in the 25th century. It's the flight of the war witch. Wow. I will make you my personal slave and you will wish you had died. Still trapped in an alien universe, Buck, Tweaky, and Princess Ardella join forces to prevent the cruel witch Zarina from enslaving the planet Pendar. We're not mercenaries. You can never return to your own universe. I wish to have the Terrans destroyed, except for Captain Rogers. You're a fool, Rogers. I'm reading this ad cruiser closing on the defense shield. Fire! Now... I think there's a reason that we picked Flight of the War Witch for 101. We, there's no, it's not, I'm not giving anything away to say Batman is not represented. So I think the fact that this may be the campiest thing, you know, other than Batman to ever air on television. It's um, so campy there are sleeping bags. <laughs> well so played, sleeping <laughs> doctor. It, 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 you know, what's it even mean? It was it was the 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 uh, finale of Buck Rogers' uh, first season before the show was completely reinvented for the second season. It is just all, everything that's great and everything that's awful about that show <laughs> in one giant package. You have um, Pamela Hemsley as, as Princess Ardala, who's betraying uh, the Earth Defense Director. You got Elm, uh, Wilma Deering. You got uh, Tim O'Connor as Dr. Hewer, all going to an alternate universe where they meet none other then Julie Newmar Dude, as come on. the evil queen of the alternate universe. That's basically, she's basically Eli Wallach in heels. <laughs> she's, she's, she's just taken over this planet, a peaceful planet of Pendar. And they need planet to help. Of Pendar. That's quite a lot they of alliteration. Rogers help. <laughs> they need a, a slightly cherubic out of shape man and oh. his beautiful harem of women to, uh, to, to save them from uh, the war, witch. the gill man, uh, and and of course her uh, her her number one henchman Spiro, played by Sid Haig, the inimitable Sid Haig. And uh, I had the I had the good fortune to work with Sid once, and I kept calling him Spiro because that's just the kind of guy I am. Sid Haig, who was uh, also in Batman, by the way. Who was also in Batman? Yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> uh, but Flight of the War, which no one I don't think anyone's saying that it is a great episode. 
we're Aren't saying we literally saying that right now. <laughs> no, we what we are saying is it's a wildly enjoyable episode. Yes, that's very would, true. Would you agree, Rob? I would say this too. I love the the War Witch's spaceship. Yes. Oh my god. It's a really cool. It vaguely looks like Nell from Battle Beyond the Stars, but yes. it's sleeker. It has no breast. After a mastectomy. And it, yeah. it it really is. I'm looking at a picture of it right now, and it, it kind of looks like a handheld vacuum cleaner, but it's pretty neat. It's and I wonder if Bond has a model of it. And it was cool because it's like it I know this sounds insane, but come on, I'm eight years old when this thing comes out. Like that those episodes just felt so big to me. Like it just sort of opened up you know, the sort of the world of the show that I was watching and I just, I loved it, man. And it wasn't like a model. It was just a painting. You know, it was like that had illumination in it. And even I knew back then it was a painting, but I'm like, I'll go with that. That's cool. Yeah. I loved it. <laughs> I, 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 I love it too. And, you know, um, Buck Rogers, for all its failings, it had the most amazing costume design. Oh, yeah. You know, certainly in the case of Princess Ardala, um, just um, amazing, amazing costumes, uh, you know, redolent of Barbarella. In fact, the production designer, I mean, the, the costume designer had worked on Barbarella, uh, the, the production designer on Buck Rogers, who also did Galactica, but Buck Rogers was m his favorite show that he worked on. Um, and uh, it's just so much fun. It gets the entire principal cast into the action. Usually Tim O'Connor never left the directorate building in New Chicago. He actually goes on the on the, on the mission. Right. For the uh, last time. <laughs> For the last, for, time. for the last the time, last yes, ride he's, not, he's not in season two, and it's a sad because it kind of promised uh, a lot of fun to come. It, it felt like next season, you know, the show was sort of finding its its legs, and it like maybe second season would be really cool. And then, of course, they completely reinvent the show under a new showrunner, and it yeah. wasn't Fred Freiberger; it was John yeah. Mantley actually who took over from Bruce Lansbury. But uh, if you're if you're interested in Fly, Fly the War Witch. Kino Lorber just came out with a stunning uh, multi-disc set of all the Buck Rogers episodes along with the uh, movie. And uh, I highly recommend it if you haven't picked it up already. I'd just like to point out I was wrong. There was actually a miniature built for the War Witch's ship, the Zad Battlecruiser. Just want to point that the out. Zad Battlecruiser. Yeah, which, is, um, uh, which was chronicled in a wonderful three-part um uh, uh, Alan Brennert article in Starlog um, where he talked about the making of Flight of the War Witch wow. and uh, you know if, if, you're, if you're really that interested you can go to archive what is it archive.com archive and read those articles in Starlog archive.org read more about it you, you can never have enough of Flight of the War Witch <laughs> sometimes you can though find out <laughs> but, but maybe not <laughs> all right that and, was that was uh, number uh, 101, Flight of the War Witch. Now, number 100. Uh, coming in at number 100, the Tim O'Connor Film Festival continues <laughs> uh, with a, an episode of one of my favorite shows as a lad, 1977's Linda Carter, the series, otherwise <laughs> known as Wonderwoman. Major Trevor, what's going on? I thought that Andros was free to go anywhere he likes. That's right, we're just keeping an eye on him. And this, strike force to assassinate him. Only as a last resort, Diana, in case he tries to harm us. Harm us? 
If anything happens to Andros, the Earth will be destroyed. Steve, our only chance is to be honest with him, to trust him, not to make a hopeless attempt to murder him. My assignment is a logical military alternative and a patriotic necessity. To quote Dr. Samuel Johnson, patriotism is the last refuge of scoundrels. Yeoman Prince. Yes, sir. Dismissed. Aye, aye, sir. Etta, this is confidential. Oh, yes, sir, absolutely. Um, this was a first season episode called Judgment from Outer Space, in which Tim O'Connor plays an alien named Andros, who comes from a species of aliens who think that all humans are a-holes, and Wonder Woman has to prove him wrong. Now, the coolest thing about this episode is not just that Dr. Ewer is in it. The coolest thing about this episode is that at the end of it, he's like, see you in 50 years, girl. And 50 years later, well, not really. It was like the next season of Linda Carter, the series, when it was all set in the 80s and Steve Trevor was still in it and nobody could figure out how or why. Um, As is going to happen on on Christmas Day. To the episode, the, the promise is delivered. You know what? You want continuity in your storytelling, right? You want big, epic, sweep? Suck it, Netflix. Suck it, streaming. Like, that's how you do it. It's Andrew saying, I'm going to be here in 50 years. The audience doesn't even know. The audience doesn't even know what's coming to hit them. Um, I, Linda Carter, the series, one of my favorites, and I, I can't recommend this episode highly enough. So Tim O'Connor is basically Michael Rennie in this. Sure. Sure. Which isn't bad. In fact, no, it's, it's fine. Not, not bad at all. He's TV's Michael Rennie. Yeah. Although Michael Rennie he was TV's Michael Rennie. <laughs> <laughs> My God, this is turning into the Tim O'Connor Film Festival. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Any, anything else on Judgment from Space? On the no, new, just, uh, the new Wonder original Woman, Wonder, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman's a fun show. It is. I'm, 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 I'm a little surprised that it showed up in our countdown, but. But uh, you well, know, how, just how could it show... not? It's a it's a strong IP from a long time ago, uh, from the the World War II years, and uh, it's back and bigger than ever this year. Absolutely. Let me ask you: would, Did you prefer the World War II season or the uh, contempt quote unquote contemporary season, uh, both starring Linda Wa- Linda and Lyle Wagner? I personally Junior. preferred the World War II season mainly because like, she has that fight where she wrestles the Baroness. I think right. that was Stephanie Powers. And that was just six year old me found that fascinating for reasons I didn't understand for like 10 years. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we would all agree that the World War II years were much more interesting than uh, but, the, but the contemporary. The, the 70s years were good too. Yeah. I mean, uh, her costume was a little different. And sometimes she had that swimming uh, That's true. Uh, suit. And she met Leif Garrett. Yeah. Skateboarding. Skateboarding. <laughs> It was wonderful all around. It really was. She was great on Battle of the Network Stars, too. That's that's for sure. She she could deliver. Battle of the Network TNAs. She didn't need her. She didn't need her stunt person. (laughs) She could deliver the victory. And she, you know, she she got two teams, CBS and ABC. That's true. Because, of course, the show famously jumped networks. Jumped the sharks. Network jumping. It jumped the network, the shark and the network. Battle of the Network Sharks. Which brings us to, speaking of animals. Number 99. 
Speaking of animals and shows that jump networks, um, this is an episode of one of my other favorite series from 1977, Lindsay Wagner, the TV show. Nice. Uh, otherwise known as the, uh, the Bionic Woman. Um, the episode in question is the Bionic Dog. Ooh. Rex, the Bionic Dog. I mean, if you're six years Isn't old, it Max? what could possibly be better than a badass German Shepherd with Bionics? And also, it kind of tugs at the heartstrings because, you know, Rex, like, got into an accident. Oh, and Max? Bro, it's Max. It's it was Max. Max. I gotta say Rex. Rex. God damn it. You, it was just a fun part did this show <laughs> with Meredith Burgess. And anyway, Max, the bionic dog, got into an accident, and they saved him by giving him bionics. But then it got really sad because Max experienced bionic rejection. And also, he was sometimes a really bad dog. And yeah. the uh, and Jamie Summers, like, you know, had to take him to dog training and crap but bionic dog training which is amazing um and at the end of it like you think it's going to be a super sad ending but it's not like max gets to be on the show and sure he doesn't ever do anything super cool again um but still he's there he's the dog you're like at any moment he could just jump up and like kick ass doggy style that I, I, don't, right? I don't i don't know if i don't know if one of max's abilities while he was bionic was peeing 500 feet i would like to think that it was and i would like to think that that was a capability that lee majors had too yeah oh for sure beginning Uh, contest see how far it goes i'd like to throw out some dialogue from this particular episode rudy dr rudy what gives you the right the unmitigated gall to jeopardize a top secret project like that do you know what could have happened jamie summers Oh, he's all right. I can prove it. How? Look at him. He can't even raise his head, let alone run bionically. I mean, wow. I'm telling you, that is some drama. <laughs> I, I, I need to uh, perform a, a moment from Richard Anderson, who was Oscar Goldman. Jamie. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> In fairness, Lindsay Wagner was nominated for an Emmy for The Bionic Woman when she played her own evil twin. And it's actually really interesting because, of course, um, the Bionic Woman was a planted backdoor pilot in Six Million Dollar Man. It got picked up. It actually went to CBS. So you had um, Six Million Dollar Man on ABC and you had Bionic Woman on CBS, much like later in the later years where you had Angel on Fox and you had um, a Buffy on UPN. So it it, it complicated crossovers. So... uh, the, but, but Richard Anderson was on both he was series. On both. He was, yep. and, both and then checks a week. Max, as as the bionic dog, was actually a backdoor pilot for a series that CBS had hoped to do about the bionic dog. Which I would have the ratings weren't the high enough for them to do it. So, by the way, the story for this episode uh, is co-credited to Harv Bennett. I don't know there what else go. he did after that, but hmm. guess well, Harv Bennett was the you know executive producer. Oh, yeah. Uh, of the show. And so he would uh, want to get a credit on that writing if it was going to be a pilot. That's our job, right, Mark? We you get money on every episode of the thing produced. But yeah, he went on and did a couple of nothing things like Woman Called Golda and uh, and, uh, a couple other things, including uh, Star Trek 2. And 3 and 4 and 5. And time tracks. That's right. We found out apparently there are a bunch of time tracks fans in the audience. That's number one. I can hardly believe it. What? Time tracks, number one. 
on this list. Well, we'll see. Time track, yeah, we'll, we'll see. see, right? We'll find out. You know, I'm sure people uh, suspect uh, what uh, number one is going to be. They might be surprised. They might not. We don't know. We'll find out. Which brings us to our next episode. Which brings us to number 98. All right. For all of those in our audience who are complaining that we're turning into the inglorious 1999ers, <laughs> this is an episode from the first season of Space 1999 called Mission of the Darians. Now, this episode not only features Joan Collins, but also uh, Aubrey Wood, who was uh, Mr. Deltoid from A Clockwork Orange, um, which is uh, always fun to watch on those shows uh, to find actors that you're familiar with, but don't really remember from where. Uh, but Mission of the Darians is also one of those episodes that was on that uh, record album from Power Records. Uh, and it was one of those episodes that they had condensed into 15 minute uh, recordings. And it's amazing how well that the Power Records uh, condensed the episode and, and had every feature of it. And it kind of I showed prefer how, that version. I do too, actually. Ooh, because, ooh. No, because look, the pacing of, of 1999 is extremely measured glacial I, even though i, I love it. glacial but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of shots of people walking down corridors that's an aaron sorkin show and yeah but they're not well, talking. that's without the steady cam there's no talking um but look this the great thing about this episode is that it's, it's really creepy and uh we're going into this uh what we think is a, a mostly abandoned uh, basically, uh, ship or city in space. And great miniature, by the way. It's a great miniature. It looks huge. It's this this giant, this giant city ship, and they go in and they discover this uh, basically race of proto humans or uh, sort of uh, uh, wild humans that uh, that kidnap them, and they find that they have a strange religion where they are. Uh, trying to call out the mutants from all of them. And uh, unfortunately, one of the, uh, one of the Alphans has a, uh, a missing finger and they call him out as being mutant and they disintegrate him in a uh, horrific disintegration plastic <laughs> oh, chamber. Poor Jimmy Doohan. It's not, Jim <laughs> it's not Jimmy Doohan, but oh. he sure would have. Uh, but, and then we discover it's, you know, it's the old tale of the haves and have nots the haves, the uh, the race of uh, of pretty people who are on the upper levels of uh, the Darien city, um, are led by their queen Joan Collins and uh, this other guy in a in a white beard, uh, and Santa Claus, kinda, and they are the guardians of the future of Daria, and they have what they call the gene bank, which is it looks a lot like one of those freezy pop uh, things that you used to put in the uh, in the refrigerator and have uh, ice uh, lollies from. Anyway, I'm m missing the point. The point is that it's the it was the gene uh, coding from all of their uh, uh, all of their race that they are going to take to their final destination, whatever that may be. And they've been Yonata. Uh, They're going to Yonata. <laughs> very well, be Yonata. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a fascinating story and, uh, I don't, I don't think the Alphans help them out very much. I think the Alphans pretty much screw up everything, uh, <laughs> when they go through it's, it's completely unlike Star Trek in that way. 
Um, so they just uh, go away and say, good luck, everybody. We've screwed up your life. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's a fun episode and uh, lots of creepiness in it, which I like. Great. Great. That's number 98, Space 1999, making its first appearance on the countdown. Will it be the last? We'll find out. We don't know. But now, number 97. Coming in at number 97 is the finale of one of my very favorite shows of all (laughs) time. Johnny Sacco and his flying robot, the episode, The Last of Emperor Guillotine. You idiots. Ah, you fell right into my trap. Giant robot has used up all his nuclear energy fighting my monsters. (laughs) Oh, robot has no strength. Well, then we'll do it. We can still win. Attack! Aye! You want to shoot me? My body is a mass of atomic energy. If a bullet hits me, my body will explode, and the entire Earth goes with it. Don't be ridiculous. You don't believe me? Then I'll prove it. Did you see that? You saw that, and that was just a tiny fingernail. Commander, let's start shooting. Then the whole Earth would be exploded. For those of you who are enthusiasts, I don't need to tell you who Emperor Guillotine is. I yeah, mean, it's Puyi, the is, last emperor, right? He is the last emperor. But no, that's like, only but when he cuts like off his a, cue. Yeah, totally. Um, look, man, he's bad, okay? He's the big bad. And if you're fighting a giant robot, you've got to be a really, really big bad. And uh, in the finale... Uh, Emperor Guillotine shows us just how big and just how bad he can be. Now, look, I know my tone is suggesting like, okay, it's silly, it's a trifle, but the truth of the matter is that like this finale is, it, you know, is one of like, when I was a kid, it was like one of the saddest things that I ever watched because the ending of it is just awesome. The way that Guillotine's powers work is um, he's got these nuclear powers and the harder you hit him, uh, the more powerful he becomes and he threatens to go critical, right? So there's no way so for like Giant Robo to beat him. So like Giant Robo's solution is to fly him into the sun. And it's just, uh, it just kills you, right? It's just so emotional. It's sad. It's like, it, I don't know. I, I love that episode. I love that show. I wanted to be Johnny Sacco. I wanted a Giant Robo. Ashley, you um, are Johnny Sacco. Let me just I tell you. I am Johnny Sacco. And I am and Giant Sacco Robo. Sacco to him. Isn't, if memory serves, Emperor Guillotine is, um, he's from the planet Gargoyle. Is he? In the episode. He's from the planet Gargoyle. Yeah, yeah. I buy that. I mean, I think there was a lot of great episodes in that show. There was like the one where like, uh, where Johnny like became friends with a kid who just happened to be an agent of the evil organization they were, they were fighting and his robot got into a fight with his buddy's robot. It was kind of like Cobra Kai, except totally different. And uh, he, okay. he was a badass. I mean, you, you can't, sure. unless you see a picture of Emperor Guillotine or Guillotine, whatever, you can't really appreciate his greatness. Yeah, for sure. Did it's he awesome. gargle Gershwin? Was... He could. Number 97, <laughs> Last of Emperor Guillotine from Johnny Sacco and his flying robot, which brings us to. Now we're counting down to number 96. Number 96 is 
the pilot for, it's not my favorite Venusian. It's not my favorite Uranian. <laughs> my favorite anus. What's my favorite Starfleet Academy groundskeeper. It's yeah. my favorite Martian. I love my favorite Martian. And lest we all forget, it was a Desilu production uh, years before Star Trek was. I believe it started in 62, I think. Um, I'm sure someone out there is yelling and correcting me right now. But um, it, of course, starred Ray Walston and Bill Bixby. 63, Darren. 63. I was off September 29th, 1963. Um, it was a lot of fun. And the first episode uh, set everything up, and it was never quite as expensive again. Uh, they had uh, Uncle Martin crash landing in his uh, spaceship uh, and they showed his ship and they showed him getting out of it. And it was really cool. And uh, and then we basically never saw it again. But uh, and it set everything up that uh, Tim, I believe the the character's name was Tim O'Connor. <laughs> Mind <laughs> <So>. blown. <laughs> uh, so there we go. Tim O'Hara. Tim oh, that's boring. That's Tim not close, though. Real, too damn close. I'm just going to keep you honest. No, I, I appreciate that. Um, but uh, so uh, Tim takes him home with him and, uh, you know, puts him up in his, uh, he lives uh, above a garage. So, you know, what's better? I mean, Rob, you used to live above a garage. Did you ever have Martians? Uh, I know, but I always wanted one. Well, I, so I did always... I. I always wanted one and uh, I never got one. And I, I did, I, I actually really loved this show as a kid. I didn't like, like, I didn't like lost in space. I didn't like comedy in my sci-fi. Huh. I took sci-fi very seriously, Yes, but this I liked. And well, I think you like, because, because of, it's because of, uh, it's because of the lead. Yeah. Ray Walston. Ray Walston he was not perfect. some, he, he was not Mork. Yeah. Of Boothby. He, he wasn't goofy. Hell with Boothby. No, Boothby yeah, no. is a is a is a terrible character that just sits there spouting nonsense. Um, <laughs> but Uncle Martin was a great Martian, and he was and he was, was all my favorite. favorite favorite Martian. Yeah, um, but uh, I I got to work on the on the lousy movie made many many years later in ninety nine. Uh, in ninety nine, yeah, with uh, uh, who was in it? It was uh, Christopher Lloyd. Um, and I actually came up with a, a line for them. Um, and, uh, it was, uh, that, uh, uncle Martin would uh, be doing something and, and Tim would say something and, and, uh, Martin would look and say, Tim, you're my favorite human. And then Tim would say, and you're, uh, you're my favorite Martian, but I'm bum. We have a title. <laughs> <laughs> But both Daryl Hannah and Elizabeth Hurley were in that movie, Darren. That's correct. There was a lot of uh, uh, lovely pulchritudinous. Uh, yes, there was. In that movie. Um, and lots of, uh, lots of fun. And uh, I designed the spaceship and uh, it was never seen again. So that's oh, how that goes. <laughs> Interesting. So far, very eclectic choices here on the big holiday special. I uh, I wonder, uh, and, and we've yet to see Star Trek make an appearance on our Star Trek show. <laughs> you are going so to have Star Trek on your Star Trek show, aren't you? <laughs> Maybe. It'll be interesting to see if it shows up. 
As we continue the countdown, we're going to go to number 95. Number 95 is not Star Trek. No. It's the trap from Planet of the Apes. a short-lived television show that actually was responsible for killing Gene Roddenberry's uh, um, project. Um, was it Genesis 2 or Planet Earth? Uh, that they're the they, same, they, you know. They're, yeah, they're the same. Same, yeah, I mean, it basically Gene had a show that it looked like it was going to get picked up and then CBS said, well, we got this Planet of the Apes TV series, so we're going to pass on your show, Gene. But uh, they didn't pass on his actors because... <laughs> Uh, starring as uh, General Urko, the feared uh, um, gorilla, gorilla uh, enforcer of the apes, is Mark Leonard. And he was uh, great. I wouldn't argue that Planet of the Apes was a very good series. <laughs> I wouldn't argue that it was a mediocre series. It was a pretty bad series, to be honest. But but the good like parts most, were really good. But like most great. science fiction, there's always an enemy mine episode. It seems a staple of the genre uh you had it in uh next generation with the enemy where uh wharf uh, and uh uh geordie are no geordie is trapped with a uh, romulan on an inhospitable alien world and he has You've to read it, uh, to him time and time again and well, give birth in, in to trap, his baby in, in in the trap uh james naughton who plays astronaut peter burke uh and along with his fellow astronaut ron harper uh, playing Alan Verdon uh, is trapped in a, during an earthquake in San Francisco in a underground subterranean subway tunnel with his enemy, Urko. Right. And now uh, Peter Burke and Urko must find common ground if they are to survive uh, the trap. And uh, they did survive the trap, but not for long because the show was canceled a few episodes later, uh, mercifully. Um, that's the real also. It was also brought back as a short-lived animated series, uh, Return to Planet of the Apes. But The Trap uh, is, is, is a vintage science fiction story in which enemies are forced to get along and realize they have more that brings them together than 
separates them. And of course, you have two wonderful actors, James Naughton, the great Broadway theater actor, um, and uh, the wonderful Mark Leonard, uh, who, are, who are terrific. It's not an episode uh, heavy for... Um, uh, Roddy McDowell, who played Galen, right. uh, who'd made a career out of uh, playing apes. Uh, I don't know how he tolerated the prosthetics all those years, but somehow he managed. Um, but uh, it's, it's uh, you know, uh, of a very mediocre show, it, it is definitely uh, one of the better episodes and it is available on DVD. It may be available on digital. I do not know. But what we do know is that now number 94. Number 94. Now, some of you might be thinking, so far, Ashley, every show that you've talked about seems to be brought to us by six-year-old Ashley. And you know what? <laughs> You'd be right, because this is, this is going to be no different. Coming in at number 94 is the finale of a little show called Ultraman, entitled Farewell, Ultraman. Bye. Bye. Let me tell you something, man. Six-year-old me, like, okay, look, this was in a time when we actually, I know kids, this is gonna freak you out. It's gonna sound like child abuse. We walked to school and we walked home and we did it by ourselves and mommy didn't hold our hands. Let me tell you something. I didn't freaking walk home. I ran home. I ran home because Johnny Sago was on. And also Ultraman. Now, if you don't know what Ultraman is, Ultraman was a show about a guy, like and it was a Japanese show, super cool, like about a guy who had like a thing that he held in the air and he became like a big dude named Ultraman. And all that matters is that he fought giant monsters and killed them horribly that man's name was hayata and the, Hi what, yes. he, what he held was the beta capsule which gave yes. him the powers of ultraman but only for a few minutes yes and there was a timer <laughs> on ultraman's chest yes. it wasn't like an egg timer that no it, it should have been that would have been cool that would have been amazing it just it <laughs> lit up when it was time for ultraman to go so he was literally on a clock he had to like kick yeah. ass really quickly and then get out or otherwise bad things happen and in the finale a bad thing happened his timer gets damaged and Ultraman gets effed up. And so another Ultraman has to come. And uh, Ultraman basically says, yeah, look, I get it. I'll like take off. But if you could split me from my buddy Hayata and like give him his life back, like then that would be cool. And so the other Ultraman is like, cool. And they do that. And Ultraman goes flying off by Ultraman. And it's very sad. Now there's a theme emerging here. Uh, Six-year-old me likes sad shit. I don't know what that's about. I like finales and sad things. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, I, 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 was guys, I love the show. I, I recently shared a supercut of Ultraman decapitating giant monsters with my 11-year-old, and he thought it was fabulous. Well, because it is. Because it is. And there's another Ultra in this episode, Zafi. Yes. And when they leave together, they, they leave Earth together. Zafi and Ultraman take off together. It's adorable. Really? <laughs> and why not? And why not? You forget, why, not why does Star Ultraman Trek. have to be alone? An Ultraman and, and alone. It led to many. There's many, even even now, they're still yes. making Ultraman movies and shows. There are Ultraman. Ultraman. Was, there's an Ultraman. Uh, there's a whole dynasty here. Yeah. That's right. In fact, I mean, hold on, kids. 
for oh. those of you listening at home, Ashley has just left his chair and is doing something very mysterious. We don't know what it is, but here he comes back. There he is. Ooh. There I am. Is that there a Chagokin Ultraman that you have there? Why, yes. Wow. Yes, it is. Ultraman. He's he all fist from the Why sky. is it in the box, Ashley? Why is it in the box? My favorite part right, of the opening... I should display it, except, Rob, I don't have, like, six glass cabinets to display all my shit. So... <laughs> I have to protect it. I can protect. I have children, Rob. They would touch Ultraman. Yeah, that's true. They would, if they I would had break kids his in here, timer. If kids were in here, it'd be all bad. Yeah, my favorite part. Terrible, dude. My favorite part of Ultraman is at the beginning in the credits, where we see the the. I think it's the name Ultraman spinning in some sort of. Uh, uh, maybe it's graham cracker crumbs. I don't know what it is, but it, yeah. it's, it's reverse. It's reverse spinning in liquid, and it forms the name Ultraman. Yeah, uh, and it's great. It's fun. Yeah, that was my favorite part. I'm sorry, the font show was last week. Oh, we damn. did typography <laughs> last week. So. That was a good show, by the way. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, that was it. Was really good. It was. We we were. Uh, it had the virtue yeah. of never having been tried. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Um. Still waiting for Star Trek to make its its long-awaited appearance on our list. Will it even appear? We don't know. It might but know. right now we have number ninety-three. Number ninety-three making its debut on the countdown. The greatest American hero. The episode Operation Spoil Sport. Mm. Operation Spoil Sport is a great episode, which would probably be much higher on the countdown if it wasn't for a horrible B story straight out of Welcome Back, Cotter, in which Michael Pere and Faye Grant end up trying to get a funny car that, which gets co-opted by Bill Culp. Now, I'm not making this sound like it's worthy of inclusion on our top 101, but in fact, it is because there's an incredible story about the aliens who gave um, the, the suit Roy to... To, to Roy Hinckley, and you know, of course, uh, that was uh, he became handsome for a while after Reagan was his attempt, the attempted assassination, then went back to Hinckley. So it gets confusing, but uh, what's not confusing is the fact that um, there is a, uh, a computer that is built like a neutron bomb that's designed to unleash nuclear weapons on Russia in the event we lose a war, but an evil general has programmed it to you know attempt a first strike on on russia that evil general general is none other than john anderson of our wow. favorite trek episode the survivors and the twilight and, zone uh, uh, uh the perfectly cast um and uh it's a very spooky mysterious episode at one point and a reanimated corpse comes to ralph and imparts secret information to him the biggest uh sad thing about this episode is this whole episode Operation Spoil Sport hinged around um, the, the 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 song Eve of Destruction, right. uh, which was uh, repeated a number of times under very mysterious circumstances. It would appear on car radios. It would people would be humming it, and it, it and it created a sense of mood and and strange weirdness. And uh, and it cost and gave a lot episode. of money every time it was played. But unfortunately, the Eve of Destruction, when the episode came to home video and uh, also to streaming, uh, much of like a lot of the great uh, other shows of the 80s, like Wise Guy, which had its iconic knights in white satin replaced with some generic B music. Uh, this was the same thing. I guess uh, they paid some guy, bought him out to write some crappy song. So Eve of Destruction is nowhere to be found 
in the uh, in the, the, the home video versions. And the episode isn't nearly as good, but in its original version, Operation Spoil Sport, featuring Eve of Destruction, uh, portending a very ominous result if Ralph Hinckley and um, and and Bob Culp can't uh, uh, can't uh, stop uh, this plan to release uh, nuclear missiles on um, on on Russia is uh, is a wonder. It's a wonderful episode. It's certainly one of the great episodes of Greatest American Hero. It's very moody and uh, clever. It's well written. Has great guest performances, and it's our choice for episode. 93 on our list. Now in your in your description though, you came across a an interesting idea. Why not make an alternate show and have Gabe Cotter find the, the suit? suit? Yeah. Yeah. And he uses it to play poker and tell sure. stories about his uncles. I Teach. think that would be amazing. <laughs> the the greatest American sweat hog. It'd be the greatest, the greatest field trips American ever. <laughs> I love it. It'd be great. Maybe John Travolta would come back for that. I bet he would. He totally would. <laughs> Up Which your brings nose us with the rubber dilithium crystal. Your <laughs> <laughs> uh... mother was rotten to the core, but great to the infantry. Hello. How are you? <laughs> oh, 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 Mr. Cotter. We've lost half the audience. They're like, what? Yeah, they're gone. Yeah. What are they you talking about? We have that no idea what they're talking about. They are. Well, but uh, Operation Spoil Sport is our pick for number 93, which brings us to number 92. Right. Right. So, you know, we're going we're gonna to bring it down a little bit now. We're going to bring it down. I'm aging up. I'm getting older. Um, so now you're eight. And uh, number 92 uh, comes to us from uh, the year uh, 1990. Hmm. Um, the episode in question uh, is entitled Deadly Nightshade. And it was an episode of the original The Flash television series. Uh, Kurt, 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 you're not well, you. The Nightshade. My hero, my inspiration. After all those years, you put your mask back on to deal with the ghost. I began to track you down. When I heard this evening that they had arrested the nightshade at Central Hospital, my suspicions about your secret life were confirmed. I broke you out of jail as an ally. You refuse to join me. You're way over the deep end, Kurt. You're killing people, isn't it? Not people! Scum of the earth. Now, how did this happen? We're friends. Come on, let me help you. I don't think so. This is all the help I need. What the hell is that? An exoskeleton to accelerate my response to the Flash. To give me a fighting chance. First things first. I loved the Flash on TV. Um, it was probably the only television show that really, at least at the time, for for you know TV superhero shows, like tried to embrace kind of a different aesthetic. It was certainly very influenced by the Tim Burton Batman, um, you know, right down to the score to the to the main title, which was mm -hmm. awesome, which I believe was Danny Elfman, uh, Shirley Walker, who went on to do the uh, the the was the composer for Batman the animated series, like did all the music for the show. John Wesley Shipp um, starred in it as Barry Allen. And those of you who watch like the CW, The Flash, um, will know that he 
John Wesley's ship is actually on that show as as well. Now, see, um, I had always thought that John Wesley's ship was the guy in the Old West that once shot a man just for snoring. Well, I thought that was John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. Oh, well, his name is his name, too. So it's fun. yeah, for sure. They, they've all got the, the same. You guys name. set that up beforehand. Come on. Not at all. I wish we all had, right. but no. <laughs> We're so good at improv. It sounds like we've been rehearsing. That's the crazy part. Um, so what well, happens to the flash in this? Yeah, I mean, I'm besides sorry. his big his big phone suit. What right. happened? Yeah, to yeah. Him? It's awesome. I, I, you know, it's um, it's uh, Amanda Pays. Like, is it? I mean, yes, she does. So she's so beautiful. Amanda Pays like, is that, that, that British accent. Yeah. And she was in Leviathan, which wasn't good. Um, married Arnie Becker from L.A. Law, right? That's right. Yeah, she did. But uh, she made her American debut in Max Headroom. That's right. Yeah, which was a, another awesome, weird show that's frighteningly topical now. Um, but. So this, it what's cool about this episode is it aired as a as a two-hour TV movie because I believe that it aired first after The Flash was actually canceled. Um, and the uh, the story is about an old vigilante from Central City coming out of retirement um, after somebody else takes up his identity and goes around like not just fighting crime, but killing criminals. So it's the Flash and like, it's this very old school, um, you know, superhero called the Ghost uh, who go up against uh, a villain calling himself the Deadly Nightshade um, who thinks that he's the good guy. And it's like, it's got really cool style. Um, it's really super fun. Uh, and I just, I mean, I loved the vibe of these two episodes. It, they felt like comic books in the most fun way. You know, and I'm not the guy who's like, oh, comic books should be all like whimsical and silly and blah, blah, blah. I'm not that guy. But like, but it really captured a sense of anything can happen, like that the that that image mattered, like that it, it wasn't apologizing for for any part of itself. And it just it, it's just it's a joy to watch. All right. That was number 92, the 1990 Flash episode, Deadly Nightshade which brings us to and now we go back to Ashley for number 91. <laughs> number 91. I'm regressing. <laughs> um okay. So the year is 1979. And uh I've got pneumonia. And uh I am just on my back uh thinking that I'm dying at the tender age of 8 years old and someone comes to save me. It's the star of the Aaron Gray show. Uh, coming in at number Silver 91 spoons. is the pilot episode of Buck Rogers in the 25th century, Awakening. Actually, 23rd century, but we're not counting. Who's counting? 25th. None of us are counting. Um, yeah, man. So look, first of all, the, the, the pilot of Buck Rogers looked great. Like there was stuff in old Chicago that was just awesome, right? And they, they never did that stuff again. Like they never went back there. It like it it sure never they did. That. They used the they used the stock well, footage mean, every episode. No, they they never did anything there. Did you see the theater and see it? Did I, you see the pilot of the movie in the theater? Buck Rogers. I did, I did. not. Yeah. 
But I think he's dying. talking about when he goes out to what they call arachnid or something yeah. like arachia, where which is like where the where you know those like sand people like Tuscan Raider like mutants are yeah. outside of the dome city exactly. that's New Chicago because there's all this wasteland. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Like Earth is like apparently the old like Chicago this... stuff. Like right, like New Chicago, we saw all the freaking time, but we never saw any of the post-apocalypse stuff, right? And I yeah. loved that, and I loved Aaron Gray. In costume, right? Didn't we all, yes. Didn't we all? I mean, come on, let's face it. It was a great costume. The Aaron Gray episode of Trexperts, the best episode. I mean, it was certainly I mean, one of the it? best. Let's not go crazy now. I We're, wasn't on it. We know. did fonts last week. Fonts. <laughs> oh, okay. Hey, that was a great sure. episode. <laughs> but Aaron Gray. Um, but yeah. Anyway, the Aaron Gray show was great. And I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that I realized. I didn't realize at the time. I don't know how. I don't know why. But it wasn't until much later. Um, that I, I, you know, I bought the Buck Rogers DVD box set and I watched the pilot. And what stunned me was the main title sequence. Right. Right. Which is not in the TV episode. Does it's, not count. It's not, but it's amazing. Buck Rogers has got like a great theme song if you're it, like, it into that's great. the theatrical version that's yeah. the movie we're yeah. not talking about the movie this yeah. is the tv list yeah far well it's still great the world this world no far beyond my time what am i what am i what will i be where am i going what will I see? What will I see? Where am I going? What will I see? Searching my mind for some truths to reveal. But that was replaced by William Conrad. The year is 1987. The year and NASA is the last of its Captain William. Oh my God. Yeah, dude. Just have a recitation of the entire episode. I could. I could be my now beat. a stage greeting right. of awakening. <laughs> <laughs> we could probably get a lot of the actors to come back and do it. Yeah, we probably could. I mean, come on. Huh? Well, you know, it was, um, you know, Michael and Sarah, you know, came in the second episode. Killer Kane was originally right. uh, played by um, oh my God, Henry I'm Silva. Old. Henry, Henry Silva. Silva. Thank yes. you, Rob. Yep. Yeah. And now the cameo by Joseph Wiseman as King Draco, Emperor Draco, mm -hmm. was only in the movie version. Right. It was not in the TV version. Because yeah, he called to. Buck a stupid policeman. No, that was something else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so why is, why is Awakening on our list, Ashley? Um, because I, I don't think that you can talk about um, kind of the history of, like, of television science fiction without really talking about Gil Gerard. I mean, look, man, like that show, I think popularized uh, science fiction on TV, like kind of put it into the, into the, I'm not talking about how like Star Trek did it. I'm talking about like a-holes like me, like really popularized science fiction for like, you know, the, for people at large, it was like a, a big deal. Like when it came out, it was just like, Huge. Buck Rogers really paved the way for Guardians of the Galaxy. That's true. You know, it it, 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 it he is so Peter Quill. Um, 
And, uh, you know, you also have this thing of Farscape, somebody from the past who's now in the future, which is sort of a, a wonderfully delicious concept because they're saying, you know, uh, you know, because there's, there's this sort of sad melancholy element that's covered by like all the jokes about, hey, where are the record players? You know, you don't have eight tracks. Oh, you know, play something funky. But meanwhile, he's sort of melancholy because everyone he knows has died, you know, which is again, something that an awakening has where he goes to visit the grave of his parents, mm -hmm. you know, which they never dealt with that kind of stuff again until like a dream of Jennifer, which where he sort of, you know, sees this old girlfriend of his that he can't believe is still alive, played by Anne Lockhart. But, um, but awakening, you know, and then awakening, they jettisoned all this stuff from the movie version because the last five minutes they have um, the stuff they added to make it a pilot where basically they say, Buck, in, in, in the future, no one knows who you are. You have no identity. Everyone is barcoded and encoded and everyone has an identity. You can be an important asset are. to security. You, you could be the perfect spy for the Earth Defense Directorate. They never did that. They never did. They set the whole thing up, but never fall through on it. The By the way, I got to say, though, the, the Earth Defense Directorate and the Thunder Fighters, all yes. of that stuff was awesome. Star Fighters. Star Fighters. Yeah, but they were called like Thunder Fighters. I mean, the actual, they were going to be used were in they? Battlestar Galactica and they repurposed yeah, they were going to be the Vipers. They were going right. to be the Vipers. Yeah. Well, and what what people don't realize is that they were one of the first designs for the snow speeders in the Empire Strikes Back. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. So there you go. It's everything's connected. All the magical connections in sci-fi come to life here on the Inglorious Tracksparts. Yeah, they are. They are essentially called Thunder Fighters. <laughs> Thunder, Thunder Fighters. The models or whatever. We've yet to talk about Star Trek, but. You know that that that'll come. I who assume. watches that show? Who watches the Watchers? Yeah, mm -hmm. we we'll don't. see. We'll see. But yeah, it, it's interesting because uh, Buck Rogers has a very you know not a great reputation. It's considered high camp. It's considered silly, and yet it's 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 now been on our countdown twice already. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if it brings us joy. I wonder People, why. Like, what else do you want from your television? I what know else why. do you want from anything in twenty twenty? Aaron Gray. Aaron Gray. I was thinking Pamela Helmsley. Yeah, she was, a, she was a penthouse pet. Yes. Good for her. And she ended up marrying E. Duke Vincent, who was a uh, Canal's like line producer guy. You know, he he did, you know, Matt Houston, which she later was on. And they married and uh, Pamela Hemsley sort of gave up her acting career, um, which is a shame because uh, she was terrific. Yeah. She was very arch and uh, obviously, uh, you know, just absolutely stunning. Yeah. Great foil for Buck Rogers. And, Which and brings great... us to number 90. Number 90 from the TV series Altered Carbon. It's out of the past. Altered Carbon was based on a popular series of books. It only lasted two seasons uh, on Netflix. Uh, the um, first season is really the only one worth watching with Joel Kinnaman. I was not a fan of Joel Kinnaman's in the RoboCop uh, reboot. And I had never seen him in his AMC series, which apparently he was quite good in. But uh, he plays uh, the sleeve, as they are, of um, Takashi Kodo or Takashi somebody in, um, uh, in Altered Carbon, who is now trying to find out who murdered him. And uh, it is a very noir-tinged series. In fact, it's such a noir-tinged series that every episode is named after a classic film noir. The 
premiere is out of the past. That's the Robert Mitchum, a Jane Greer uh, classic. And, uh, you know, Altered Carbon and, <coughs> excuse me, I'm about to choke. <coughs> Altered Carbon doesn't reinvent the wheel. It, you can see its touchstones on his sleeve, everything from Blade Runner to Minority Report. But it does it in a very stylish, <coughs> excuse me, a very stylish and entertaining way. Don't choke on your aspirations, Mr. Old. <laughs> and it, it, it's very dark and twisty, and there's some wonderful performances. And um, I, it never really connected with an audience, which is, I think, why it only went two seasons. But I'm a big fan of the show, again, particularly the first season. It truly is pulp science fiction. It's not, it's not deep. It's not complex. It's it's a murder mystery, ultimately. It's not a very surprising murder mystery, but uh, it is lavish in its production values and its style. It's a, clearly a very expensive show with a very appealing cast, and, and I dug it, and it's number 90 on our countdown. That's Altered Carbon, Out of the Past. So now we count down to number 89. Number 89. You know, another pattern that I'm establishing is my love for finales that tend to be pretty final. Um, number 89 is the, turned out to be the series finale and the first season finale of one of my very favorite shows. Um, now and again, the episode entitled The Eggman Cometh. Uh, um, now and again was a just was a, a terrific, terrific show. Um, Glenn Gordon Karen, uh, who created Moonlighting, created this show. Um, Renee Chavaria, who was one of the like, you know, the, the big guys on Deep Space Nine and on Star Trek The Next Generation was like number two on the show. Um, it was it was just extraordinarily well written. Um, and just incredibly, it, it was just so human. It starred Eric Close um, as a man who is given a second chance at life um, in a perfect body. Uh, but the, the price is that he can never see or talk to his family again, because it's a matter of national security. Um, his, uh, his, his handler uh, is played by Dennis Haysbert, uh, pre-24, who is also terrific. He sings, he dances. I'm not kidding. Um, it's it's awesome. Um, and the show just had a lot of heart because even though it was very much, you know, what's the mission of the week as the engine of the show, what was really on the show's mind and in its heart was the relationship between um, Eric Close and, and his wife played by the very lovely and talented Margaret Collin. Um, and they have so many like near misses together. It just, it's aching. Um, he develops this incredibly complicated relationship with, with Dennis Haysbert, um, who has basically said, if you screw up, I'll have to kill you. Um, even though you can tell they, they have this incredible bond. And in the, in the finale, um, Michael, Eric Close's character, basically commits the cardinal sin. Um, to to save his his wife, uh, he reveals who he is, uh, risking death at the hands of of Dennis Haysbert. And the end of that show is Eric Close and 
uh, and Margaret Collin and their daughter played by Heather. It's, oh my God, is it Heather Matarazzo? Zaro? We'll have to look that up. Let's go to the phones. Uh, running for their lives, leaving the house as Dennis Haysbert walks in and sees that it's empty and you don't know where it's going. And it just kind of ends there. But it's, it's weirdly, um, it's very satisfying because at least you know he got back to his family and they know who he is and they have a new life together. We don't know what that life looked like. I, I wish we did. I wish CBS gave us a chance to see it. But it's a lovely series and you cannot go wrong by finding a way to, to check it out. And that episode in particular will just crush you. All right. Yeah, it's interesting. I thought Renee Chavria would have the career that Ron Morris had. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought he was just a sensational writer on Deep Space Nine. And he's worked consistently on shows like Dark Angel and Now and Again and um, with Ira, I think, on um, uh, the 4400s. I, but um, but he never had his own breakout series. You know, he never had a series that he created that became you know sort of pop culture phenomena the way that Ron has with Outlander and Battlestar Galactica and even um, you know the new series uh, for all mankind, um, but uh, I, you know now and again, uh, you know I, I a lot of people work for Glenn Cord and Karen haven't had the greatest experience. Well, but, Mark, uh, it Carnival Row is pretty cool, and Renee created yeah, that. Yeah, but he wasn't really involved in taking it. Mark Guggenheim took over. Yeah, you know? so, um, and you know uh, I think that. Um, you know, now and again was a period of time where a lot of the networks were toying with like sci-fi premises, but in a sort of procedural format. You had a lot of shows like that, like Journeyman around that time. Yeah. I think this is a couple of years after Dark Skies, um, you know, it was Life on Mars. But uh, now and again, is certainly one of the better of those shows. And now yeah. another wonderful sci-fi <laughs> fantasy episode at number 88. Number 88 from the classic <laughs> science fiction series, Hill Street Blues. It's Freedom's Last Stand. Ooh. Now, you know, when you think about 1982, you probably think about E.T., Blade Runner, Conan the Barbarian, Poltergeist, Star Trek II. But there was another legendary. There is another. Uh, uh, um, series uh, that uh, was it had just entered its second season. And that, of course, was the revolutionary Hill Street Blues. Now, you're probably thinking, are these guys on glue? How can Hill Street Blues be on a list of the greatest science fiction and fantasy shows of all time? Because of well, Dennis Franz's Blues, heavenly body. In, in Hill Street Blues, uh, in the first two seasons, there was a character played wonderfully by Dennis Dugan. It was um, Captain Freedom. Captain Freedom, of course, was a masked vigilante who would help the police uh, solve crimes. Uh, they didn't want him. They barely tolerated him. He was clearly mentally, uh, uh, he was clearly, you know, insane. Um, and he was played mostly as a comic foil uh, on this very dark and grounded and gritty show, which looked like a movie and was completely um, different than anything anyone had seen on TV before. In fact, created by the legendary MTM. Uh, Grant Tinker, who was one of the people who was involved in greenlighting Star Trek. There's your Star Trek back when he was at NBC. Um, and um, but in, in the episode Freedom's Last Stand, which largely deals with uh, uh, Captain, uh, not Captain Torello, Captain uh, uh, Daniel Trevani's uh, Captain Farillo. Uh, 
uh, dealing with sort of a criminal uh, um, investigation, uh, you know, basically that they kept a cop on payroll and were doing some illegal things and they were involving police corrupt, involving police corruption. It was a pretty standard cop show. Meanwhile, some of our cops are sort of undercover um, at a restaurant where uh, uh, food uh, uh, investigators and, and cops are basically um, hitting them up for money to look the other way. So everything seems like your standard police procedural when all of a sudden um, a robbery goes down, gunfight ensues, and who springs on the scene? None other than Captain Freedom himself. And Captain Freedom is brutally killed in a hail of gunfire. <laughs> Suddenly this comic foil for the show, the B story, the C story that gave the show uh, a quirky kind of weird character that they could have fun with became a character of incredible heart and sacrifice. And uh, it ends with this wonderful uh, scene between um, uh, Belker um, and uh, Dennis Dugan's Captain Freedom as Captain Freedom uh, passes away, handing his magical glove to Belker before he expires. And uh, I think, um, why is it? Why is this on the list? You know, you'll see we have a couple of superheroes. It's only right to pay tribute to the great, late, great Captain Freedom, but also to see um, this is one of the early attempts, you could say, um, to treat comic book characters realistically. Up until this time, we'd seen things like Batman, Adam West, Batman, and... Um, uh, you know, come, and then the League of Legend of Superheroes and Wonder Woman, but uh, you know, more 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 campy than not than treating superheroes in a serious manner. You certainly didn't have anything like Watchmen today or um, The Boys or uh, any of these shows. But this was sort of a very early version in which uh, a quote unquote superhero functioned in the real world uh, or it was, dysfunctioned. It was like Homelander without all the killing. He was Homelander without the powers. But uh, he, he, for those of us who watched it in its original airing in 1982, it was a very potent and powerful moment in a series uh, that is among one of the great TV series of all time. And that's why Freedom's Last Stand is number 88 on our list of the 101 greatest sci-fi shows of all time. We now continue our countdown to 87. All right. This is... Uh... This is one that is uh, one for the books because it is Saga of a Star World, the pilot of Battlestar Galactica, Mark One. Uh, and, uh, you know, all I got to say is fleeing from the Cylon tyranny, the last Battlestar, Galactica, leads a ragtag fugitive fleet on a lonely quest for a shining planet known as Mars. No, Earth. Yes, Earth. And uh, do they ever make it? We don't know. I mean, we really don't know because that sequel show never existed. So we'll just leave it right there. But look. So you're giving the game away. Galactica 1980, not on our countdown. I don't even know what you're talking about. Not even Return of Starbuck. No. Look, the original Battlestar Galactica is a wonderful show. If only because it was sort of the first big... Uh, sci-fi epic TV shows. You know, this was a film quality show every week for not as many weeks as we would have liked, but it was very expensive. Uh, and they, you know, 
they couldn't keep it up for long enough. I've tried. Um, but look, it's it's a lot of fun. I, I love the reboot too. I love them both. Um, I think that there is room in the world for both of them. Uh, but the the simplicity, the the clearly good versus evil uh, stories that the original Galactica had, and uh, you know the uh, the scariness of going down deep into the Cylon mines and discovering horrible things down there uh, is all the more reason to put this on our list. And uh, damn, I love Cylons; they're really cool. Darren, I I also have to say that this particular episode of science fiction television has perhaps in my mind, one of the greatest moments of optimism ever in any science fiction. And that is even after the destruction of the colonies and billions of humanity are dead, Starbuck goes to a, an Ovion casino and uh, says, oh, I, I see these great girls singing, it's love, 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 love. And he says, we got to hire them and put them on the circuit. He doesn't even think about that there's nobody who's alive to watch them perform. Right. Except where they are. But he still says we can make some money with these so what girls. What you're saying is that even in, in Battlestar Galactica, humans are stupid enough to just think of their own needs and ignore everything that's going on around. No, them. it's is about the un, unquashable entrepreneurial spirit <laughs> that the yes. hum, human male, when he sees a great nightclub act, can feel like he can change his life. So it's sort of Mrs. Maisel meets right. road warrior dude okay. i would watch so. the shit out of that show are you kidding let's pitch it now i i have to say i love what darren said i think it's true um there's a reason that they were able to release this pilot theatrically yes because it it, it was worthy of a theatrical it held up to scrutiny uh, in movie theaters in sense around um, no less in sense around right. last movie released in sense around it, it it might be uh, one of the highest rated show science fiction shows ever on television yeah. in retrospect. Um, it is uh, again, using, you know, it's all it, Mark Hamill famously called it Battlestar copycatia to me, <laughs> but um, I think it's so much more than a star Wars ripoff. Star Wars allowed it to be made, but it, it didn't infuse its DNA. And uh, let's, we forget, same, let's we forget um, Galactica was in development for years before star Wars was. Like, and a lot of the same people worked on it. Mm -hmm. So you have John Dykstra doing the effects. You have Ralph McQuarrie designing the ships. So obviously there are elements that feel redolent of Star Wars, but the story is very, very different. And uh, in some ways it's better. <laughs> uh, um, in some ways. Uh, in some ways. And it is just a, a um, but it, it, look, it, it, there's some goofy dialogue. There's a lot that's silly about it, but you said yourself, you, you pick your battles yeah. and there's a lot about it that is wonderful and uh, once you, you know, it's the story of a you, family. Once you cut through the Felger card, it's really good. Yeah, there you go. I couldn't have said it better <laughs> myself. And great performances. Terry Carter as Colonel Ty. Uh, the late Richard Hatch is, is quite good as Apollo. Yeah. Dirk Benedict is wonderful as, as Starbuck. Um, and then uh, you have uh, Marion Jensen, <laughs> who uh, maybe not a great performance, but, uh, you know. But she's and, and Lorette Spang, who before Firefly, played a socialator mm -hmm. right yeah and uh, a lady yep. of the evening who later became a nurse when they downplayed that aspect of her character but isn't it always the evening in space <laughs> indeed it is actually indeed it is 
and, and, a, and a great score by Stu Phillips. Great. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the wake of John Williams, how do you do something that can compete with that? Well, look, I'm not saying it's it's John Williams score to Star Wars, but it is a really powerful space opera Absolutely. score. You know, and there's nothing in his oeuvre until that point that would give you the impression that he could pull that off. Right. And it, it's incredible. Uh, it's really uh, it's really incredible. If you want to read more about Battlestar Galactica, check out my book. So say we all which covers the making of the original Battlestar Galactica, Galactica 1980, and the new Galactica. That's all I have to say about that. Which brings us to number 86. Wow. Am I part of this show? It's my you're, first. You're back. You're back. After all a right. long... <laughs> no, I have to. I have to. I have to preface this by by going a little Ashley Miller here and say that when I was a kid, I was a Star Trek Twilight Zone. I was very erudite sci-fi fan as a child, but I loved the Six Million Dollar Man. I think the first time I learned about tragedy was when well, Jamie Summers was all the projecting her bionics. It was no, it was it was a big thing. I love the Six Million Dollar Man. This is a this is a fifth season episode right before the end. I think four or five episodes before the end. And it is, to be honest, terrible. It is a terrible, terrible episode. But I, I love this episode because at the time I saw this, I was watching a lot of Sun Classic pictures. Uh, the Outer Space Connection, The Mysterious Monsters, In Search of Historic Jesus, and Beyond and Back about the afterlife. And I was reading books about psychic phenomena. I was going to my local library and reading books about spontaneous human combustion and ESP and Charles Berlitz's The Bermuda Triangle. And in this particular episode, Steve, who's driving, I think, on 100-foot stretch of, of Mulholland, gets into an accident where his car crashes and he sees what he thinks is a projection of himself a ghostly image of, 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 of Steve Austin. And after he's recovering with, with Rudy and, and Oscar, he's explaining what goes on. And they tell him he must go see a parapsychologist because it's an exciting new field of study. And so he meets this, you know, beautiful parapsychologist as you would, would think. And, and she finds out, she realizes that when he had his crash that turned him into the bionic man, he was actually dead for like 57 seconds or something. I don't remember the exact number. And perhaps what he's seeing is his spiritual self because he has actually come back from the afterlife. And I, of course, was fascinated by this. And I thought, my God, my sci-fi hero and Steve Austin, you know, growing up, I... I think it was 11 by this point, but I, you know, I've been watching him since I was six and, and to know that he was one of the, he, he had a spiritual experience was uh, fascinating. So he's crossing over. He, he could be a ghost. I didn't know. And then of course you find out it's all a Scooby-Doo ruse and it's two criminals, two bad guys that are playing him and they're using projectors that are buried in the ground. And it turns out all of this, Steve, like he was like Fox Mulder for a while. He wanted to believe like I wanted to believe. And I was I was captivated by this until the end when my belief, perhaps for the very first time, but not certainly not the last time my belief was shattered. I had reality come crashing in on me by the end of this this episode an hour later. Much like and, Steve uh, Austin's legs were shattered. In that I lost crash. some of my innocence, but for whatever reason. It was this episode 
the first episode, the Andromeda Strain episode, where he throws the thing in the SWAT truck and blows it up, and the Bigfoot episode. These are the three episodes I remember the most, but this one profoundly affected me. See, I thought you were going to, with the way you introduced that, you were going to say the Brady Bunch episode where they see the UFO out the window. Yeah. But, uh, no. you know. And, you know, Rob, uh, here's, the th here's what I don't get about... I, I think you're I think you're giving this episode short shrift. I think you're giving Dead Ringer short shrift because what you're forgetting is Jeremy Irons' amazing performance as a gynecologist who invents specialized gynecological equipment for women with wait. Oh no working on mutant oh. women, yes. Yeah. Is that a different thing? That's a different wait, thing. Did Jeremy Irons fight the six million dollar man? That would have been cool. Uh, I would love to have seen Dr. Elliot or Beverly Mantle in a six million dollar man episode. Can you imagine if they're 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 they had bionic devices to work on mutant women? There's a Dude, show. Crazy. Crazy. But you know, for well, whatever reason, on that note. <laughs> what are we even talking about now? I don't I, even I know. Just, you know, the, the six million dollar man, for those of you who don't remember was a big show when you were a kid. It was a really big, big show. It was well, a, there's a lot of our audience that wasn't alive yet. So. Yeah, it was a big show because he was, a, and and every, the opening was so self-important. And if you didn't, and, and, and it was shot, it looked like it cost six cents. This episode uses stock footage of the lightning bolt that you'd seen in a million different movies. And, uh, and they Gilligan's use it Island. Over and over and over and over and over. Yeah, and, and it's just, to me, it, it was the profundity that they were searching for, that they were reaching for in this episode, just spoke to me. And because I never forgot it. that they called Universal the factory back then. You know, it, they we, you know, promoted Universal Pictures and Universal Studio Tours. But Universal was making a lot more TV than they were making movies. Yeah. And, you know, they all used the same font. You know, and they all use the back lot for a million things and <laughs> six million, uh, six million dollar man. But yeah, yeah. And but you know, certainly you know, six million dollar man by the time it gets to those last couple of seasons, you know, it's running on fumes budgetarily oh. and everything else. It looks so, like this, this episode looks like it costs about six cents instead of six million dollars. It was not the sixth sense, it's the six cents. Yes, the yeah. six cents. He was oh. dead the whole time. <laughs> Okay. I mean, it's half of the episode is shot in literally uh, a, a, an outdoor area by the same tree where the car crashed. It's just, but it, it spoke to me. But it's wonderful. Yeah, that's why I love watching those old Universal shows and just figure out where on the lot they yeah. shot. Oh, there's the commissary. Oh, wait, this is across from, you know, oh, Black Tower. And it's just like, oh, to get, because now it's hard to watch any of that stuff from that era because it's all. You know, we've all spent so much time on the Universal lot. It's like, <laughs> like this is not the futuristic council chambers. This is, you know, uh, <laughs> where you get lunch. Um, okay, so that brings us to it. Brings number. us to number eighty-five. Number eighty-five. Battlestar Galactica returns to our countdown with the classic episode, "The Living Legend." Ah. You will maintain silence until we land aboard the Battlestar Pegasus. The Pegasus. It's just not possible. Are you talking about Starbuck? I wasn't comparing you. But you're going to have to give me time to think. Think of the impression on the city of Gomorrah when they learned that I personally led the final assault on the humans. Commander, I'm not picking up anything on my scanner. You won't find them on your scanner, Captain. Then how are we... I can feel them, Captain. I can feel them. We must take that base. We must take Gomorrah. 
That is one opinion, Commander. It does not happen to be mine. In this episode, uh, Lloyd Bridges plays uh, the commander of the Battlestar Pegasus, which makes this triumphant return after being presumed destroyed. Commander Kane. Uh, what did I say? You just said the commander. Oh, okay. Com yes, Commander Kane. <laughs> and um, he, uh, uh, and, and Adidama and uh, Kane, uh, as, as, as initially happy as they are to see each other, uh, begin to um, find out they have a lot of differences in how they approach things. And it's kind of, uh, uh, you know, Patton. Yeah, and Space uh, Patton. It's, it's Space Patton. He's Patton. And he doesn't want anybody to tell him how he should do things. And uh, he also has uh, quite improbably left an old flame behind who's yes. still alive in Cassiopeia. Who was perhaps <laughs> a socialator at one point. Hmm. Yeah, his uh, his um, his lady of the evening, <laughs> or his lady of the solstice. I don't know. And um, and uh, but it is a wonderful episode because, of course, uh, John Kalikos eating the scenery with his usual aplomb plans to finally annihilate the Galactica with three base stars, only to discover in the first part cliffhanger. I suggest you look at the other battle star as he's about to enjoy his moment of triumph. Mm. He suddenly realizes he is about to be destroyed as Kane uh, comes around in the Pegasus and double teams them with two battle stars. It's a fantastic, uh, uh, you know, a fantastically fun episode with a gleeful performance by Lloyd Bridges who just eats the scenery with a plum, but is uh, just delightful in the role. It introduces Annie Lockhart in the role of um, Sheba, um, which sort of uh, becomes the love interest for Apollo for uh, the rest of the season. Um, and, and it's uh, the greatest swagger stick in the history of science fiction. Yeah, it has the greatest swagger Way stick. Way better than Captain Styles. Way yeah. better than Captain Styles. It also gives... Um, it also gives um, uh, um, Lauren Green, some of his best uh, uh, opportunities, uh, you know, uh, when he gets to really go toe to toe uh, with uh, with Lloyd Bridges, especially when he calls out um, Bridges on uh, on basically Lloyd Bridges is trying him to take this base on Gamori, but uh, Adama doesn't want to endanger the fleet, so he suggests a um, uh, uh, get the fuel they need from these two Cylon tankers. And of course, uh, uh, Lloyd Bridges destroys them both. And then Adama has this great scene where he calls him on the carpet after he claims that it was an accident. He says like, you decided the fate of those two Cylon tankers. It's great. It's just great. Also, Mark, you know, what? <laughs> one thing about the, that episode was Battlestar Galactica was cool up to that point. But with Living Edge, Living Legends part part Living Legend Part One and Two, it 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 entered the upper echelons of this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Because you you had no idea that there was another battle star coming back. And the way they played it in Commander Kane, even when, you know, back in 78, 79, seeing that character show up and another battle star show up, it, it was like one of the great it was like watching a it just elevated the show to another level and when you're a kid the awesomeness of of having a guy who didn't just have another battle star but who wanted to go in where angels fear to tread and wreck shop and just like let's do some business man i am tired of running and it was awesome 
awesome. Well, it's funny you say that because David Gerald famously said in Starlog, the premise of Galactica was flawed because it was about a bunch of cowards, people who were running all the time. And, you know, there's a certain truth to that. And in this episode, you you had a guy who all he wanted to do was kick ass. And it, it sort of like gave the show a shot of adrenaline. Yes. It's like, because you were kind of with him. You're kind of like, yeah, but it also let's showed kick Cylon ass. But it also showed that that was kind of the wrong way to go to. Yep, well, absolutely. Well, it, yeah, it certainly did. But you know what? These things are called battle stars. And as a kid, Not I wanted to see stars. them unleash. <laughs> They're runaway stars, yes. <laughs> I, I wanted to see them you know, take the battle to the enemy. I agree. We got to take that base. We got to take Kamori. It's great. So good. You know, and it, it, look, it's, it, and, and, you know, it would be really cool if they'd ever uh, brought that back because, um, you know, it ends uh, in this big explosion and you think, oh, we're, uh, you know, hopefully the Pe Pegasus is going to come back one day. Um, and maybe it'll come back on our list. We don't know. We'll find out. But for the moment, that's number 85, the living legend from the original Battlestar Galactica. And now on to Ashley for number 84. So coming in at number 84 uh, is, uh, I believe, our first entry uh, from a show that I, I think is, is probably one of the great uh, classic genre shows of, of all time. It certainly has one of the most hummable theme songs of all time. Uh, it, every episode featured an amazing performance by uh, Bill Bixby. I'm referring, of course, to The Courtship of Eddie's Father. Right. I'm, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Eddie, Eddie, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm referring to the Incredible Hulk, and one of my very favorite episodes, uh, a two-parter called "The First mm. Parts One and Two. So here's what's cool about the first. The first is the only episode of the Incredible Hulk where the Hulk actually fought um, uh, something as superpowered as himself, right? Now, usually the format of the Kim show Roth. is David Banner like goes from place to place, having adventures like Kane and Kung Fu. He meets people, they need help. He wants to stay out of it, but he can't stay out of it because the world is full of a-holes. And, and he's, he's hunted for a murder him. he didn't commit. That's right, he's wanted for a murder he didn't commit. He's pursued by a, by a reporter. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, and, and things always happen that, that make him Thank angry. Goodness. I mean, well, usually people try to beat him up. That dude gets beat up so much. I mean, Partially. more than anybody should ever get beat like, He gets beat up. How many episodes of that show? He, he only gets, gets beat, up, up, beat and, up until his eyes turn white. That's right. I mean, it's just, but come on. I mean, how many of us have been given a beat down like, 60 times? How many None shirts has he gone through, for God's That's, sake? That's oh, all, and how many pants? Anyway, so, you know, he gets beat up and like he gets pissed off and he turns into Lou Ferrigno, except green. And uh, he just unloads on people and it's glorious. So and what's awesome about the first, the first is basically a horror movie where David Banner realizes that there is another Hulk out there. And um, he finds this old man um, who was also part of an experiment involving gamma radiation, basically to treat him for like some blood disease. And what David Banner represents to this old man is a chance to um, restore his own kind of health and vitality. He loved how it felt to become that creature, right? He's kind of a sociopath in ways that David Banner hates becoming the Hulk, 
right? He doesn't like the violence inside of him. This old guy, like, he loves that violence. It makes him feel alive. And this episode just, it's, it's again, it's just like a great horror movie. There's such great atmosphere to it. Um, it's scary. It's weird. I mean, look, it's a little odd that there's like an old dude in Hulk makeup kicking ass, but it works, man. And it's just, it's actually really well acted, um, really well done. They never did anything else quite like this before, but it was a, it was a great entry in a great show. Yeah, a lot of shows in that era ripped off the fugitive paradigm from The Fugitive. Mm -hmm. It was the same premise, you know, uh, Richard Kimball is being hunted in that case by a police officer um, in, in David Mor uh, Morse, to Barry, Barry Morse. Um, and that paradigm was done a lot in the 70s and 80s, you know. Uh, the Incredible Hulk is is only one version of that, but the Incredible Hulk may be the best version of that. Paradigm. I would agree with that. I, I think you know people think, oh, is Lou Ferrigno in a bunch of green body paint? The show is much better than that. Yeah, it, it and that's really a tribute is. to uh, Kenneth Johnson, who who was mm -hmm. the showrunner on it, who really uh, brought a lot of heart to it. Of course, Bill Bixby deserves a lion's share of the credit, who was just sensational as uh, <laughs> it, you know in the role of. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, David, David Banner. Banner. Yeah, he was not Bruce Banner. Do right. you know why? Why? What I heard was that they thought that the name Bruce was a little soft. Well, no. the actual CBS thought it was too gay. That's they what I mean. They, they, yeah, they, they thought it was too gay. Tell that to uh, Batman. This is the late seventies, and uh, and so they changed his name from Bruce to David Banner. Yeah. Wow. So, wow. Um, uh, and that's that's a, a true story. And um, it's it's really sad, um, and uh, but a wonderful show, and uh, again, you know, very well written, and another part, uh, another uh, a product of the Universal Factory. That's right. Um, done by Universal, uh, and you can all tell because they all have that same. I'm, I'm, I keep saying this, that same font. For, you know, when it has the episode at the beginning. Yeah. If you look at all these shows, they all have that same. I wonder what font that is. We it's, should call David Addy. Yeah, it's it's Eurostyle. Oh, it is. It's yeah. Eurostyle. It's just not extended. Yeah. Oh, that, that's hysterical. <laughs> that's hysterical. <laughs> um, but all those shows have the same, you know, credit sequences. Yeah. Um, but uh, but Incredible Host, terrific show. And I'm, I'm really glad to see it making an appearance it on really our list. Is. Which brings us to number 83 and Mark Altman. Uh, no, it's not me. 83. This is... Uh, 83. 83 is totally Mark Altman. 83 is me. 83 and me. 83 and me. Is that like a DNA thing? Yes, it um, is. Okay. 83 and me. This is the one, last one you gave us. Yeah. Okay. Well, I apologize because I was working off an old list. This is how how much, how hard we all are working to bring you um, quality. Up-to-date up list. Quality, sh quality show. Yeah. So uh, you're absolutely right. And uh, I, I think I'm so stunned it's on the list that I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> uh, number 83 is from the TV show Darkroom, Siege of 31 August. Now, a lot of you probably don't know what Darkroom is. Darkroom, there were a lot of shows that ripped off the Twilight Zone, right. some well and some not. Outer Limits uh, considered in that vein, Night Gallery in that vein. Um, there were a bunch of shows throughout the 80s and 90s, uh, you know, more successfully Black Mirror, right? Uh, but this was a show that aired on Friday nights for a very short period of time yeah. uh, in 1981. Was it NBC? Early 1982. It was ABC. ABC. ABC on Friday nights. 
and it was hosted by none other than James Coburn. Our man Flint. Coburn. You're in a house. Maybe your own. Maybe one you've never seen before. You feel it. Something evil. You run, but there's no escape. Nowhere to turn. You feel something beckoning you, drawing you into the terror that awaits you in the dark room. have multiple segments uh usually with a always with a twist ending but usually with a horror element to it and in siege of august 31st august none other than the great ronnie cox plays a vietnam veteran with ptsd who wants his his son uh who to go to a military academy and uh, he calls on his old boss to sort of get him in. And he gives he's trying to instill in him a love of the military. He gives him uh, a Company B army figures, a very prized toy. Um, and the kid at first is very excited to get these Company B army figures. But over the course of the episode, it's kind of like the episode of uh, Twilight Zone, Living Doll with Talking Tina. Uh, and these these army figures come to life and start to torment Ronnie Cox. And by the end, it, it ends. And remember, this is 1981 ABC Network TV in a battle royale between these toy army figures and a, like a helicopter. And uh, it's like Ant-Man meets toy soldiers uh, fighting Ronnie Cox and ultimately <laughs> kills Ronnie Cox. Uh, I'm not giving away the game because it's impossible to find this on home video or streaming. Right. Uh, so you probably want to know how it ends. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and it is to much in a way to the um, wife's relief because the, the son was starting to become scared of his dad and the mom did not want him going away and joining the military. It's actually a great kind of anti-war treatise. Um, and Ronnie Cox is of course, superb as he always is. And it's a little, uh, lost piece. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a classic, but it's it's a really entertaining and audacious little Twilight Zone esque tale of uh, of 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 sort of army toys come to life. And I think you know certainly in that era when we were all young, you know we all had army toys. Uh, you know the the idea of army toys sort of coming to life uh, and 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 ba having battles and the the tanks firing rockets and helicopters flying in and the army men firing really i mean it, it's, it's very appealing and i know it was appealing then i rewatched it again recently and um as i say it's sort of a lost piece of ephemera 
but it's a, a, a nice piece of genre storytelling, and it's our 77th now, best episode. It's 83rd. I, I think you're, you're not 83rd right. I, I, I think it is a classic. Like, I was delighted that this was on the list. I was stunned. I was stunned I didn't think of it. Like, that, that episode has just stuck with me since I saw it when I was, like, 10 years old. It's just... It doesn't leave you. And I okay. think that's the definition of what makes something a, a classic. I think if Dark Room had stuck around, right? Um, I mean, that's just something we Mr. would still Burnett, be talking about. I got a problem with this episode like you can't believe. Oh, shit. This episode is a shameless, shameless ripoff of a Stephen King short story called Battleground. Mm. And it is the exact same story. Army mm. soldiers, a guy gets them, they come to life. There is a pitched battle with it's it, it's it, there's the details are different, but the premise is a shameless. Mm. When I watched this, I was a Stephen King uh, fanatic, and the story Battleground appeared in Night Shift. It, it had been published in like Collier magazine, which I'd never heard of, but it was collected in Night Shift, and it was one of my favorite short stories I ever read. And when I watched this episode, which I loved. But even I knew I'm like, they ripped off Stephen King, except at the end of the episode or the end of the story, if I remember correctly, there's a huge explosion and the main character, the person in the story dies and a there's a fluttering, a piece of paper comes out of the exploded apartment where the battle happens and it says, kids, for a limited time only. You get a global thermonuclear device yeah. in your set of <laughs> figures. And that's what happened at the end of the story. But when I saw this episode, I couldn't believe that Stephen King didn't get credit for it. It is great. And it was really well done. And I loved it. But I still was like, they stole Stephen King's story. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, it's funny you say that. But that, Stephen King did not have Ronnie Cox. So no. this gives yeah, it the, no. uh, you know, the, the Cox factor. So, <laughs> no, it was uh, great. I mean, they did a really good job. It was by far the best episode of Darkroom. By oh, far. Oh, by far. Yeah, by yeah, far. Absolutely. And you yeah. know what? That was a show. You wanted it to be great because it was like Twilight Zone. And and I was uh, James Coburn was a great host. Mm -hmm. But the episodes just were all like derivative of other things, including this one. Yeah. But it just was I was very dis disappointed it was canceled, but okay. I, I'm, I'm really glad that this is one, you know, very obscure that, that I think we all, we all share a certain fondness for. Indeed. Um, so that's great. And speaking of uh, episodes that we all love and share a certain fondness for, that brings us to number 82 and uh, Ashley Edward Miller. <laughs> number 82. The six million dollar man is back, baby. And what he is bringing you is the secret of Bigfoot. What was that music you were doing? Don't know. I, I'm like, what was that? Wasn't that the theme song? Listen. You know, dun 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 dun. That's no. not how it goes that's either. Not the, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Man. That's when he's running. You got to get the beginning. 
Oh my you god! You know, and just cut to the fun part. Look, Darren man. knows. Darren can do it. He's the guy that does the music with his mouth. I'm sorry. What? We can't. Steve Austin. A little chin music starring Darren Dockerman. A, a man, man barely, barely alive. alive. Tell us the secret. We of can rebuild him. We have permission. Look, here's all you need to know. Bigfoot has a Steve secret. Austin meets Bigfoot. Bigfoot isn't just a Bigfoot. Bigfoot is a robot Bigfoot. A and he's robot. not just a robot Bigfoot. He's an alien robot Bigfoot. Oh my that goodness. is a hat. With a, a redhead minder and Stephanie Powers. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Dude, it's not even a hat and a hat and a hat. It's a, it's a banana on a banana on a banana. It's I wouldn't mind her at all. Bananas. Ross. And Thank yeah. you. Uh, look, <laughs> dude, it's fun. Andre the Giant yes. plays Bigfoot. How amazing is that? Hello, and people lady. forget that they think it's Ted Cassidy, but Ted Cassidy's only in the second one. Right. right. That's right. I mean, look, Bigfoot is so successful in How this episode. They don't just bring him back, you know, on it for like a, a two-parter on, on the six million dollar man. He comes back on the bionic woman. Oh, yeah. He comes back like what five times? Because Bigfoot is awesome. awesome. Steve Austin, the six million dollar man, fights robots. They made a Bigfoot action figure. Yeah. Yeah, they did. I mean, come on. It's like, what, 1976 or something? I'm five yeah. years old. Have I ever seen anything cooler than this? No. Well, or will you in your entire right. life? In my entire life, I've never seen I always thought that the Bigfoot cool action figure and the Chewbacca action figure would hang out together. I, oh, they totally. kind of look they, the they same. Be best friends. Yeah. yeah. They like, go to bars. You know, like Chewbacca would be like the wingman. Harry bars. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's why we, we, we're confusing the toy lines with the episodes. Same thing with the Planet of the Apes show. It had, you know, great <laughs> Planet of the Apes toys from Mego. So I think that may have colored our opinion of, of, of that episode. <laughs> um, but yeah, the Bigfoot episode was a pop culture classic for, for people of a, geeks of a certain age, as Darren would call us. Yes. Uh, this was uh, as, as seismic. Uh, uh, a moment in genre as virtually anything I can think of short of the Star Destroyer um, going over Tatooine. This was a huge deal when uh, uh, a Bigfoot showed up on the $6 million man and not one that's forgotten, partially because it was chronicled in the pages of Dynamite magazine. That's correct. <laughs> really, really, really. And it's a good episode. It's it super is. fun. The whole because Bigfoot, they're aliens. The whole Bigfoot I mean, they saga. go through the tunnel. Yeah, it was the best. I mean, the alien. That's all the, I wanted to do at Universal Studios was go through the six million dollar man tunnel. Yeah. And it made you sick too. The way they did it, it worked great every time. Every time. One, yeah. the, our next episode is something that I wish Dynamite Magazine was still around to have on their cover, and that's number oh, eighty-one. Totally. And I bring you Mark Altman. <laughs> well, number eighty-one. I think Darren said it best. Dynamite Magazine would love the show. They dig the show. And of course, that is The Mandalorian, the episode, The Marshal. In this episode, the titular Mandalorian goes to Tatooine, where he meets up with Cod Vanth and has to team up um, in order to defeat a crate dragon with the help of the Tusken Raiders. Can't we all just get along? Apparently we can. Because Cod Vanth in Boba Fett armor and the Sand People and the Mandalorian defeat the Krayt Dragon. And, and I said it before on the show, I'll say it again. The Mandalorian, and I don't, this is not a criticism, is the kids today's $6 million man. 
if you are 11 years old, the Mandalorian <laughs> is the greatest thing you've ever seen. And it is, it is what the $6 million man was does. So if you're yeah. thinking, who are these old fogies in the stupid? What is this six million dollar man? It is the Mandalorian without armor. The six the million, million dollar Mandalorian. Mandalorian. Yeah. We just made a billion dollars. <laughs> and that is not a criticism, Mandalorian. No. Uh, Mandalorian, you know, it, it, it's fun for adults, but it's great for kids. Yeah. You liked it as a kid. You trust it as a mother. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I think, um, you know, Mandalorian was uh, uh, almost an hour. Most of their episodes clock in around a half hour. Had a fantastic production values. The Crate Dragon was super cool. And it was basically Jaws. In fact, the, the funny thing is, it was my 11-year-old who told me that. Yeah. He said, you know, Dad, you know, this is, he loves it, but this is Jaws. I mean, like straight <laughs> down to the barrels. And, and, and I'm like, oh, my God, you were so right. This is Jaws. And it's funny because if you break down the episode, it hits you know, every beat of Jaws. We're going to need the only a bigger thing is Richard Dreyfus, But, uh, but the production values are great. And uh, it's super fun. And uh, that's our pick for number 81, the Marshall. I have to say it humanizes the sand people. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, we, 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 we have the great, the, I, I love that about it. And I thought that, you know, all we know of the sand people is they're they're They, they enslave people, they kill people. And in this, you can hang out and have, you know, s'mores with yeah. them over a nice campfire if that's what you want to do. And they're trying to survive. They're just trying to survive. It's not easy in the, in the, the deserts of Tatooine. No. Like, uh, and, like and again, the, the indigenous waste. people that's that the indigenous people there that are having problems with the settlers. Yep. And uh, it's classic Western. And, uh, you know, from day one, the Mandalorian has always been a Western meets uh, a lone wolf and cub. And uh, it never is. It, it, I think it's a very meta casting to cast uh, Timothy Oliphant, who, yeah. of course, we all loved in Deadwood as the sheriff, yeah. as Cod Vanth. And uh, he's terrific. Yep. And, uh, and I it, think it's a lot of fun. We see more of him somewhere, somehow. I, I hope so, because I really enjoyed that character. I have to say, uh, my, my, uh, my son was very upset to hear that the tragedy was not on our list, but. Um, uh, but, you know, I think that episode, I think uh, people love because Boba Fett's back. But I, I feel like the Mandalorian, uh, uh, the, the Marshall is a, a full meal. Yeah, it, it, yeah it, I agree. It has with you. A, so, yep. which um, brings us to number 80 and Ashley Edward Miller. Number so, 80. This is so, one. Uh, you know, I told you guys, um, I used to run home from first grade to see. Uh, Johnny Sacco to see Ultraman. And beyond all things, I ran home to see one of the greatest television shows of all time, one of the greatest animated shows of all time, a little show called, and it had one of the greatest theme songs of all time, a little show called Star Blazers. And number 80, on our list is a little episode called Jupiter's Floating Continent. Now, I'm pretty sure that Rob Burnett is going to wax poetic about Star Blazers oh. when I've said my piece, and I'm going to oh. give him the floor to do that. But I want to point out why this is on the list specifically. Because in Jupiter's Floating Continent, one of the greatest science fiction weapons of all time makes its debut 
and kicks unholy ass and changes my life and my imagination forever. The, uh, in Star Blazers, it was called the Argo, but we all know it as the Yamato. The Yamato unloads unloads with the wave motion gun, right? Which is a gun literally the size of the battleship. And with it, they destroy an entire floating continent in Jupiter's atmosphere. A whole base goes up. It changes the dynamic of the entire show because the enemy aliens, the Gamelons, realize that, holy crap, those human monkeys are packing. It's awesome. And every time a wave motion gun got ready to fire, they'd bring down the goggles. Like, and like the shields would go up because this gun is so powerful. You got to wear shades to fire it, man. That's how cool it is. You got to wear sunglasses to fire the gun. Great show. Great weapon. Um, Six-year-old me, totally delighted. Over to you, Rob. Well, you know, it's it, it's very funny because I'd only seen pictures of this animated series in Starlog magazine. And there were like two pictures I'd seen because the show debuted in Japan in 74. And it had it had IQ nine, which was a robot that was R two D two was clearly based upon, and it was so uh, revolutionary because it was the first serialized science fiction show I ever watched. Because mm-hmm. every episode they would count down. It was it was one story went into another. It was not individual stories. It was one long serialized story about these earth people that were, were given uh, technology by queen starsha of Iskandar to, if, she said, if you can come to me, I, I will, I will give you the Cosmo DNA to save your planet. And, and every day at the end, they would say, there's now, three, yeah, there's now 328 days to save the earth. There's now 258 days to save the earth. And it was, you got so invested as a kid watching this. And I was, I think I was in junior high. I think I was 12. And I was watching it in the morning before school and I was riveted. I'm like, what? This is amazing because clearly it was still anime, you know, Marine boy and speed racer, but this was a cut above. I mean, this was so intoxicating and you were so invested in the characters and what was happening. And man, it, it delivered. This did not, it ended, it, it was epic. And it was the kind of thing where you're like, I can't believe what I'm watching. And it was the first time I was so engrossed in an ongoing television show, even though it was animated on, 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 the, on the morning before I went to school. Rob, I'm going to have to uh, call you a little bit uh, since you called me before on something. Uh, IQ-9 only appeared in Star Blazers, not Space Battleship Yamato. And that was in 1979. So it was two years after Star Wars. IQ-9 was not in Star Blazers? No, he was in Star Blazers, the Americanized version, but not in Space Battleship Yamato. Well, wait a minute. He was called the Analyzer in Space Battleship Yamato. He wasn't called IQ-9. Well, yeah, I'm going to side with Rob on this one. Um, I don't know how, like, you sort of animate him into the show out of nowhere. no 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 he he was called the he was renamed the anal i mean iq9 yeah, but... yeah 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 no i know i'm i'm with you dude well, well my march i abstain okay i'm just saying that i think it was the other way around i don't think that uh 
Star Wars. Because they didn't do off, new yeah. animation for the show. They actually no, cut they the animation. They, the the yeah. original opening of the show was the American sinking. Well, no, the, they 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 did do new animation, just the same as uh, as uh, G Force did. They did they did wraparounds. They absolutely did new animation. So. Guys, I think I want to do a podcast about <laughs> animation. Well, maybe you should. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> Wait a minute. Let's see. <laughs> okay. Honestly, well, you know we don't Let's have time for this. this. We don't have I time. Know. <laughs> we, 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 we got to get through uh, another four or five before we cut this off. And we're already we're, we're going to 75 in our first episode. So we still have a few more episodes before. Uh, we, we break uh, for our next episode. So let's go to number 79 at this point, uh, which is No Place to Hide, the pilot for Lost in Space. Um, now, of course, this is, the, this is the aired pilot, which includes Dr. Smith. Um, but the original version did not. The original version only had one uh, floor of the, uh, of the Jupiter 2 or the uh, Gemini 12, as it was in that episode. Um, and it was only the family dealing with uh, the dangers out in space and uh, crash landing on that planet. Um, and it's wonderful. It has none of the camp uh, comedy stuff that was in later episodes. And even the version with Jonathan Harris as uh, Dr. Smith, he is a real nasty character. He isn't uh, doing uh, any of the comedic turns that he does later on. Uh, where, uh, um, you know, the creators told him to do more. But uh, no, it was, it, it was very serious at the beginning. And uh, it was also in black and white and it was very gritty and it was, but it was still fun. I mean, seeing the, the Robinson family uh, and, uh, you know, Judy who uh, gave up a life in the musical theater to go along uh, with them uh, was, uh, it's just a wonderful show. And, you know, I have a small part in my heart for the original Lost in Space, even the goofy episodes, uh, as maybe we'll see later in this list. But I think that the pilot is hands down a fun TV space adventure, and I heartily approve of it. I, I think the show would be better remembered if that first season had been in color. I think that uh, yeah. one of the reasons, like it was very big when we were younger, mm -hmm. you know, it was still in syndication. And I think people, I mean, I had a good friend who preferred Lost in Space to Star Trek. And um, and I think that over time, if Netflix had not done the reboot, I, I don't think many people would remember Lost in Space. Um, but that first season in Black and White is quite good Yeah. before it becomes a camp fest. Yeah. And there's a lot of great stuff in that and uh, great uh, technology and uh, uh, a good cast. And of course, the robot's wonderful. Indeed. Which brings us to number 78 and Robert Meyer Burnett. Well, this is an episode that I bonded with one of our inglorious experts, Mark Altman, when I first met him back in 1994. This is an unsung episode of The Next Generation that never winds up on anyone's top 10 lists. Well, it's the worth noting, this is a our first Star Trek episode mm -hmm. on the list. So here we are, Star Trek uh, Next Generation making its debut um, at number you know, 78. At, uh, at episode, uh, number 78, which is uh, amazing that we have not had Star Trek on the list so far. And, and this is from the third episode. It's the third episode of the third season of TNG. And you 
it's about the the Enterprise is going to a Federation colony on Rana Four, and when they arrive, they find the planet has been devastated, aside from a very small patch of land, and uh, they go to investigate, and they find the Uxbridges, the the uh, a lovely couple, um, and uh, the great John Anderson is playing Kevin Uxbridge and his wife making Re- his second appearance, much like Tim O'Connor on our list, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and his wife uh, Rashawn, and they explain that Anne Hanny, the late <laughs> Anne Hanny, and they were they were uh, they were attacked by the Husnock, uh, vicious aliens, and it's the episode where famously uh, Worf says, "Nice house, good tea." And Riker is ensnared and captured by his leg and and uh, <laughs> in, in, in a very funny trap. And the Enterprise crew meets them. They seem like lovely people. But Deanna Troy is having weird psychic, she, whether she's being attacked or something. And then uh, there's there's aliens attacking the Enterprise. There's all kinds of wackiness going on. And it becomes very clear that something is rotten in Denmark. And... Mr. Uxbridge, Kevin Uxbridge is not telling the truth about what's happening here. And there's a lot of sleuthing going on. And Deanna has a lot of of psychic pain. And it is revealed, of course, that all of this, uh, the colony was devastated by the Husnock, these aliens. And it turns out that Kevin Uxbridge is actually an alien called a Dowd. And he fell in love with a human and he was trying to live a life as a human. And it was all destroyed by this alien race and they killed his wife. And he's, he's the, the, the woman, the Rashawn we meet is a projection, very Solaris-like, very uh, Tarkovsky Solaris-like. And it, the whole thing is a tragedy. And we find out at the end in a shocking turn of events that our our character Kevin Uxbridge, in his grief and in his anger, that the Husnock attacked this planet, that his omnipotent power that we don't really know but could rival the Q's in in its in its just vast g- galactic or universal reaching power in a moment of rage, he reached out and committed genocide and wiped out an entire race. And I remember it was the first time when I was watching Next Generation, when when you get to the end of the episode, Patrick Stewart, when he's being, when Kevin's coming clean and explaining this, you see Patrick Stewart playing, he's trying to contemplate, I mean, Picard, but it's, it's a great performance by Stewart in his face. He's so shocked by this. And he's he's trying to grasp what it means for an alien who's so omnipotent because even the Q haven't done that. The Q might take you and show you the Borg, but they don't just reach out with their omnipotent power and snuff out an entire race. And I remember watching this because it starts out and you think, oh, there's this kindly old couple. And by the end, you're contemplating galactic genocide. And it's when Picard says, Patrick, we, we have, we can't, I can't even, comprehend the scope of your crime we don't there's nothing on our books there's no justice that we could possibly met out i mean this is and i i remember sitting there watching this going oh my god because 
you know, we have we have in patterns of force. You see the the Nazi planet as a Jew. I understand the 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 what that all means. But to hear about galactic genocide was it was a gut punch, man. And the way they led up to this. And whenever when we were writing, when, when I was writing for Mark Sci-Fi Universe in the mid 90s, we were I remember doing a, a top 10 list of next generation and I put the survivors on my top 10 list. And I was criticized for it. People like, come on, man, really that episode? But if you go back and watch it, it's because of John Anderson's performance. And he had worked, he yes, he had worked with um, Jonathan Frakes on North and South. And and they knew one another. And man, he brings a gravitas to this. And the way he plays it, man, uh, it's devastating. She never knew what I really was. Your colony was attacked by a warship. Belonging to the Husnak, a species of hideous intelligence, knew only aggression and destruction. I could have destroyed them with a mere thought, but I did not do so. You had the power to stop them, but you didn't? I refused to for the same reason that I refused to stop the Enterprise. I will not kill. So you let the colonists fight a hopeless battle. I tried to fool the Husnak. As I tried to fool you, it only made them angrier, more cruel. And then what you most feared happened. Rishon went to fight with the colonists and died with them. Oh, I wish I could have died with her. But you couldn't. You were left alone. Yes. I saw her broken body. I went insane. My hatred exploded. And in an instant of grief, I destroyed the Husnak. Why did you try to hide this from all of us? Was it out of guilt for not helping Rishon and the others when they were alive? No, 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 no. You, you don't understand the scope of my crime. I didn't kill just one Husnak or a hundred or a thousand. I killed them all. I think it's probably the most Twilight Zone-esque of any of the Next Generation episodes. Um, we've talked about this episode on the show before. Obviously, it benefits from having a lot of location shooting. Mm -hmm. um, but at, the, at its heart, um, it, it really is that performance of John Anderson. And Patrick Stewart, who hadn't really been challenged a lot uh, in those first two seasons, who's really getting some meaty stuff to play. Yeah, And uh, I think that's why that episode works so well. And uh, also... Um, I think it's a cool mystery and it's not a weird techno mystery. It's like a, a, a genuinely earned um, mystery that has a very satisfying ending. And, there's, and I, I think that's why this episode has I, only improved with age. I hate to say it. We can't, we can't spend as much time on this episode. Sorry. I, it's a, it's a great episode, but we can't spend 10 minutes on everything. 
because we're running out of time quickly. So I'm going to have to. We're not running out of time. No, we, we time have. Time is the fire in which we burn. Yeah, and we're burning through and it we're like burning, crazy. we're burning, baby. We're burning the midnight oil. So I'm going to I'm gonna have to call an audible. The, the next episode. And, and give us number 77. Also, Mr. Burnett. All right. This is actually five episodes rolled into one, but it's called <laughs> Torchwood Children of Earth. To me, this is one of the finest five hours of science fiction television ever. Uh, Torchwood is the special countdown. Yeah, Torchwood was a spinoff from um, Doctor Who, obviously, with Captain Jack Harkness, an immortal human who comes back to Earth to run Torchwood, which is a clandestine organization created by the Queen of England to combat extraterrestrial and supernatural threats. Uh, and um, this episode is the third season of the show. It's five episodes long, and it's basically... These aliens uh, have come back to Earth and they are demanding. I don't want to ruin it, but it's it's some of the most diabolical what they OK, I'm going to say it. Basically, what they want is children because they feed off of them. And we find out in the past that we collaborated and we gave these aliens kids to basically they smoke kids the way someone smokes a bowl of marijuana they basically these aliens smoke children i always thought they were too wiggly and hard to like well i you mean know, i think they taste better barbecued honestly <laughs> uh, uh the way that euros lynn directs these episodes the the threat and how the government turns on torchwood the relationships in this it, it is it's beautifully directed it, it's 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 a tom clancy thriller meets science fiction meets horror and when you find out the reveal which i've already spoiled for you it is just unbelievable and peter capaldi who winds up playing uh the doctor later in doctor who plays a british uh, functionary who's trying to manage this situation and it is it is dire it is fascinating it's like a great bond film meets tom clancy and it just blow it blew me away and the first time i saw this i'd never seen torchwood ever i'd never seen yeah. any of the episodes i knew who captain jack was i brought home the, the the blu-rays i put in the first episode to watch it it was it was one in the morning i had to watch all five episodes and i went to to work after like three hours of sleep amazing well ending part one of our countdown is ashley miller with number 76 bringing us home for number 76 for the first part of our Inglorious Trexperts countdown. Ashley, what is number 76? Number 76 is an entry from a, uh, a, a science fiction space opera from the, uh, the, the, I guess the late 90s, early aughts. Um, a, a delightful show uh, that was on the Sci-Fi channel that I think like holds a special place in the hearts of many of the people who would listen to this podcast, Farscape, um, which was notable not just for its human characters, but it's, uh, it's Jim Henson uh, uh, sponsored characters. It's like it, the damn show had Muppets, man, but it was awesome. Um, it was just, it, it had heart. Um, it was very smart. Uh, it was sprawling, it was epic. Um, it was a, a kind of everything that you 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 would want uh, a show to be. It was it was it was this 
it was like a streaming show, man. Like that's how you do it now because everything was connected. And it was very simply about like a man from earth, an astronaut from earth stuck out in space with a bunch of aliens he barely knows, um, just trying to figure out how the hell to get home while being pursued by the biggest a-hole in the universe, a guy named Scorpius. And in the, uh, the episode, like, I didn't even say which episode we're talking about because I'm just that good. <laughs> number 76 into the lion's den part two wolf in sheep's clothing why are you bitching at me like we're married scorpy sue just tell me what's on your mind i suspect you're stalling either through ignorance or by design i hoped you'd see reason what do you think i see huh i'm here on a big, stinking command carrier. Dick Tracy's freaking neural bracelet linking me to Bram Stoker's nightmare. What more do you want from me? Cooperation. You stole that. From my memory, you will kill both of us. I reckon so. It took quite some effort to triangulate the stars from your planet. More to gain a visual confirmation. Get the hell off of me, you freak! Earth is reachable. Top speed. Just have a 60 cycle. This episode features our hero, John Crichton, um, teaming up with one of his uh, antagonists, a dude named Crace, Commander Crace, um, who has basically taken command of, um, I know this is going to sound weird, the child of, uh, of Crichton's ship, Moya, uh, a ship called Talon. And these ships are sentient and they're awesome. And Talon is a problem child. He likes violence. You know, he's a, he's a battler, man. He's a baller. And what makes this episode great is very simply that this terrific antagonist, um, Crace, turns out to be a guy with depth, right? It turns out that he and Crichton have, have kind of forged a, a, an alliance of convenience um, and at the end of this episode, without, I'm going to spoil everything, Crace uh, and Talon sacrifice themselves to save Crichton and save the crew of, of Moya um, from Scorpius. And it's just this beautiful, moving moment. And it's one of my very favorite things when you can find a great villain who has a moment of incredible humanity and you can bring real pathos to it. Um, just a terrific episode of just a, a truly fun, delightful show. Wow. Well, that is an incredible countdown so far and very surprising. There's been a notable dearth of Star Trek represented. I wonder if that'll change in part two as we count down from 75 on. But uh, until then, I want to thank Robert Burnett, Ashley Miller, and of course, my co-host, Darren Doctorman, for joining us for the incredible holiday countdown. And we continue on our next episode with episode number 75. What will it be? Join us and find out on the next installment of Inglorious Trexpert's holiday special, the 101 greatest sci-fi episodes of all time.
Listening to the Electric Surge Network.